Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Cancer in the Workplace, Understanding Your Legal Protections. And this is part three of Life with Cancer, A Guide to Getting the Best Care. And I have to say that um, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And, of course, your interest in the program today, this topic is it couldn't be more timely in our world today. And so um, we have on the call today um, over 368 participants. And you come from all over the United States. You come from both uh, rural, urban, and suburban areas. And you also... Um, uh, come from uh, in, the, in the United States, but we also have international participants from Canada, Iraq, Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, and the United Kingdom. So it's really, um, this is truly a bit of a global call. And we are delighted to have so many of you on the call today. Um, and today's program is supported by AbbVie, Bristol-Myers Squibb, a grant from Genentech, and an educational grant from Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Um, and I have to say that we have over 368 participants on the call today, so it's really a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. And um, I want to, our faculty could not be better for today's program. So our first speaker is Dr. Richard Grala. Dr. Grala is Professor of Medicine, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Jacoby Medical Center. And Dr. Grala will be addressing, well, Dr. Grala, first of all, is going to put this program in the context of the COVD-19 world that we're living in right now. So he will be addressing, he will put this in a context because we're all, we want to be sure that we don't just do this program oblivious to the fact that we're all living in a very different world right now. Um, and Dr. Um, Sagrala will do that, and he will also be addressing understanding the meaning of work, talking with your healthcare team about your work, and managing your cancer treatments while working. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grala. I'm uh, Richard Grala. I'm a medical oncologist at the Albert Einstein Cancer Center in New York. I have the pleasure of introducing this program, which will discuss many aspects of work and having cancer. We have a very knowledgeable panel for today's program, and I believe that the information will be helpful, useful, and thought-provoking. But as Carolyn mentioned, I'd like to start by making a few comments about our current situation with the COVID-19 pandemic, which concerns all of us, and certainly raises many questions about caring for cancer. Please note that Cancer Care will have another program on March 30th, which will be devoted specifically to this topic. First, I'd just like to review the important safety messages that have been circulating. All of us are aware of the term social distancing, being at least six feet or two meters from others, and in many states and countries about isolating at home. This is all very good advice for everyone, and particularly for those with cancer. Studies have shown that the virus can live for many hours on most surfaces, and even for days on plastic and stainless steel. This is why cleaning surfaces with potent chemicals, such as bleach or strong alcohol or products like Lysol, is important. Good hand washing with soap and water is excellent. Frequently, it should be done and for at least 20 seconds at a time and after any possible contacts. If soap and water is not available, the alcohol hand sanitizers with 70% alcohol are a good measure. Remember that in cleaning surfaces and in using the alcohol hand sanitizers, these substances have to dry first. We must avoid others who have the infection. This is not easy to do in the home, but it is absolutely a priority. Many organizations such as the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, 
the American Society of Clinical Oncology have given advice including postpone non-urgent clinic visits and procedures. Many oncologists are doing this now and are also using so-called televisits to minimize exposure. It's just a visit over the phone. So speak to the office and you can go over an awful lot that way. Some centers advise screening all patients and family arriving at the clinic on entry for fever and for respiratory symptoms. If there is any question, the individual should immediately wear a mask and listen to the healthcare team for further guidance. I also think personally that patients should come to the clinic with no more than one caregiver, and if possible, that caregiver might wait outside even in the car. We all hear about the risk of concurrent illnesses as being a problem with COVID-19 infection. It should be realized that many people with cancer have quite intact immune functioning when it comes to infection. But of course, we need to be extra careful for those with cancer or those who are undergoing treatment. I'll be happy to discuss more about these issues when we have the question period later in the program, but now I'd like to return to the other issues for discussion. In continuing with our original program, I've seen my role to communicate the medical oncologist's view in terms of work and living well with cancer. First, a major goal in cancer care and in recovery is to assist people in pursuing their normal lives as close as possible to how they would have done so if not for the cancer. We have to realize that individualizing care for each person is key. People have different cancers, physical and emotional status, work environments, and aspirations. All of these need to be taken into account on a personalized basis as we discuss work in relation to living well with cancer. Since the focus needs to be on the individual, it is key to utilize and discuss issues very frankly with your healthcare team, your doctors, nurses, social workers, and others. Right now, Perhaps the bigger barrier to work is the viral pandemic and work sites that are closed. But there's a misperception seen by some people that if a person has cancer or is receiving anti-cancer treatment, that going to work is not possible. This is by no means true for many people. Whether going to or returning to work is a good decision can be a bit complicated. Among many considerations are one's health status, personal views, employment realities, and legal issues. We are very fortunate to have Nina Gorman on the call to inform us of many of the legal and regulatory concerns, and I'll look forward to learning more for her about these issues and some of the newer considerations. Your cancer team typically determines what we describe as a person's performance status. There are several scales. The most time-honored is called the Karnofsky performance status. This straightforward, simple scale is useful and accurate and can help in recognizing an individual's health status that is consistent with returning to work. Additionally, advances in supportive care, which means preventing side effects of treatment, allow many people to maintain a good quality of life during treatment, be that chemotherapy, immune oncology treatments, or radiotherapy. And in fact, often newer surgical techniques allow for more rapid recovery after important procedures. The bottom line is that many people with cancer who are receiving treatment are currently working, are able to work or are close to being able to work given that they're of a working age. Clearly, performance status needs to be seen in the context of the individual. If a person has a physically demanding job, can considerations be given to working part-time, or could that person temporarily be on desk duty? Could arrangements be made for the person to be off on treatment days, or maybe working two or three days a week would be reasonable and quite productive, especially based on that person's long-time work experience? And yes, these days with the pandemic, many of us are working from home. Your doctor, nurse, or social worker can help in many ways, especially by putting your treatments in context. How long will the treatment continue? What are the likely time requirements? Can my treatment be arranged to be at a particularly convenient time for me? What considerations would be right for me concerning extra risk, uh, rest? And of course, we need to consider the social distancing as well. 
for, by all means. What are my options of treatment choices? Will proper supportive care help me avoid side effects that could otherwise interfere with my pursuing, pursuing normal activities of work? Treatments vary greatly and have often changed quite a lot in modern cancer care. It may be that past experiences of friends or of relatives who've had cancer treatment in the past would be very different today. Again, individualizing care is the key. This helps to have as positive an effect as possible and will contribute to preserving and improving quality of life as well as maximizing benefit and can lead to accurate expectations around work issues. So discuss, discussion and communicating with your healthcare team can be really helpful in many aspects when considering work. There are always questions such as telling others about my cancer treatment, what do I wish to share, what should I share? How can the human resources, HR staff at my work be helpful? There are many considerations that need to be individualized and that fit with your personality and goals. Certainly, it is important to know quite a bit about one's cancer and treatment, as well as one's rights when beginning such discussions. At least for the illness and treatment aspects, again, your healthcare team really would like to be helpful. So often today, a new term is used called precision medicine. While many definitions are possible, one that I think works well comes from the U.S. National Institutes of Health, and it states that precision medicine is an emerging approach for disease prevention and treatment that takes into account people's individual variations in genes, environment, and lifestyle, all relevant to cancer care today. Certainly, many of these are considerations that relate to work and to other activities while receiving cancer treatment or during recovery. I'd like to now turn the program back to Carolyn Messner, and we'll look very much forward to the presentations by Ms. Gorman and Ms. Nugent. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Grawa. That was outstanding and a wonderful context for the program today, and um, I can't thank you enough, and um, thank you so much. Um, our next speaker... Um, is uh, is Ms. Nina Peshavis Gorman. She is an attorney, and she's supervising attorney, Legal Health, New York Legal Assistance Group, or NILAC. And, and Ms. Gorman is going to be doing a, a lot of different topics. I'm going to start with her first set of topics, and then I'll reintroduce her for the next set of topics that she has. So she's going to start off with understanding your legal protections in the workplace. And those include Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, Family Medical Leave Act, or FMLA, and Intermittent FMLA, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, and state and local laws. And then when she concludes those topics, I'll then reintroduce the other topics that she'll be addressing. So I'm with great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Gorman. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner, for organizing this panel, and Dr. Grala for providing the context for this discussion. I'm so pleased to be a part of this teleconference to first discuss the legal protections in the workplace and other general issues surrounding employment and cancer. Of course, we're speaking right now in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, and these laws and protections may be relevant to that. At the end, I will also address some of the specific regulations and policies that have been put into place as a response to the COVID-19 pandemic as they relate to employment. So to start off, I'm going to give you an overview of the laws that protect people while they are still working and also if they need to take a medical leave. I will also talk about what to do if you believe you're being discriminated against at work or if you have to stop work due to an illness. My focus will be on the federal laws that apply to all 50 states, but I do urge everyone to also become familiar with your state laws. In addition, I want to urge everyone to, uh, who is working to make sure you review the specific policies of your employer. Uh, with regards to medical leave and disability pay. So let's begin the discussion of federal laws with the Americans with Disabilities Act, or is often called the ADA. The ADA applies to everyone who works for an employer with 15 or more employees. The ADA has a broad definition of what is considered a qualified disability, and even includes illnesses like cancer that have gone into remission. So as a result, cancer is generally a covered, is covered under the ADA as a qualified disability. There are two main benefits I'm going to discuss with regard to the ADA. The first is that it requires an employer to make reasonable accommodations when requested by an employee with a qualified disability. 
This allows an employee to request a modification of their work schedule, work environment, or company policies. What is reasonable is determined on a case-by-case -case basis, but an employer must grant the request unless it creates an undue hardship, which is a very tough burden for an employer to establish. Even extra cost to the employer is not always an undue burden. It, it may depend on the size of the employer. Some common accommodations my office has helped clients obtain include starting a workday at a later time due to the side effects of a medication or getting an extra break during the day to rest. It's important to remember that even with an accommodation, you have to be able to do the essential functions of your job. So for example, if you're a cashier, working from home may not be an accommodation that's an option for you. There's no set list of accommodations, but there's a terrific website, the Job Accommodation Network, that provides detailed information and suggests common accommodations. Your employer cannot outright refuse an accommodation, but they can negotiate with you, perhaps suggesting an alternate accommodation. It must be an interactive process or a discussion. If you have an accommodation in place but need something different at some point, it's always modifiable. The employee must request the accommodation. Generally, the employer is not allowed to ask if an employee is disabled or needs an accommodation. So this puts the burden on the employee to come forward. It's important to do this if you feel that your illnesses or your treatment is impacting your work. I always suggest that the accommodation request be made in writing with a letter of support from your doctor that supports the accommodation requested um, that, that it's medically necessary. And I also suggest that the letter specifically states that the employee is able to perform the essential job task. Any medical letter you provide to support your request must, be remain, must remain confidential and be put in a separate file outside of your employee folder. The second ADA benefit I'll discuss is that the law prohibits discrimination against an employee because of a disability or a perceived disability. This includes in hiring, firing, demoting, or harassment. If a person is able to do their job and has an accommodation, an employer cannot take an adverse action against the employee such as terminating or demoting them, if the reason for doing so is based on the disability or accommodation. An employer, of course, can still address performance issues or other non-disability related concerns. And I'll talk more in detail about employment discrimination later on. I also recommend looking at the EEOC website because it has a helpful section on cancer in the workplace that specifically talks about protections for cancer patients under the ADI. I'm gonna next discuss the Family Medical Leave Act often called FMLA. FMLA applies to employers with 50 or more employees, and to be covered, you must have worked at your job for at least 12 months and for 1,250 hours in the last year. If an employee qualifies, they're entitled, for, uh, they're entitled to 12 weeks of job-protected leave every 12 months. FMLA leave is unpaid, but it can be supplemented with sick time or short-term disability. Employee benefits, such as health insurance, must continue for the 12 weeks, although, as the although you as the employee must continue to pay any contributions you typically make for the premiums. FMLA can be taken as a continuous period of leave or an intermittent period as small as an hour. So for example, an employee with treatment every other Thursday afternoon can request FMLA leave for up to four hours or whatever amount every Thursday, every other Thursday afternoon. With FMLA, your job will be protected for up to 12 weeks worth of time off. It's an important federal benefit for someone who has used up all their sick time and is worried about losing their job or being threatened by a supervisor for excessive absences. Also, please check your state laws as many states now have paid or protected leave policies even if you do not qualify for FMLA. Note that the protections under the ADA, such as reasonable accommodations, only apply to you as the employee with limited exceptions. Under FMLA, however, time off can be requested to care for yourself or if you're a caregiver caring for a family member, like a spouse, parent, or child. If your FMLA time off is exhausted and you think you may be able to return to work shortly, additional time off may be requested as a reasonable accommodation under the ADA. Or if you work for a smaller company and FMLA does not apply to you, you may request time off for treatment as an ADA accommodation as well. There are no set guidelines for reasonable accommodations, and what is reasonable is determined on a case-by-case -case basis. Some courts have even held that up to a year leave is reasonable under the ADA. Next, I'm gonna talk about disclosure under the ADA. Disclosure of your medical condition is a personal choice and you have the right to determine to who and under what circumstances you want to disclose your health conditions. Under the ADA, disclosure is generally not required with some exceptions. 
When you're applying or interviewing for a job, the employer cannot ask any direct health or disability questions. They cannot ask you if you're disabled, although they can ask you if you can perform the duties of the job. An employer cannot require you to take a medical examination before you are offered a job. I usually suggest that if someone needs an accommodation, they first get the job and then request the accommodation. If an employer makes a job offer, they can condition that offer on your passing a required medical exam, but only if all entering employees for that job category have to take the exam. In other words, people cannot be singled out. Employers may ask you to complete a medical questionnaire or a medical exam, and you must be truthful in responding. However, an employer cannot revoke that job offer because of the information provided about your disability as long as you can perform the essential functions of the job with or without an accommodation. But they can renege on the job offer if you provide false information, so truthfulness at this stage is important. Once you're working, your employer cannot require that you take a medical exam or ask questions about your disability unless they are job-related and necessary for the conduct of your employer's business. Employees in jobs that involve public safety may have more job-related medical inquiries than, say, someone who works in an office. My general advice is to only disclose when required, and this would be if you need an ADA accommodation or time off under FMLA. If you must disclose for an accommodation or for FMLA leave, go to Human Resources if you can, as they should understand these laws that protect you, and many supervisors and coworkers do not. The NHR also has confidentiality requirements. However, even with all of these legal protections, unfortunately, discrimination does occur. If someone is working and believes that they're being treated unfairly, they should first try to resolve the matter through HR. HR employees are trained in these laws and should understand your rights and help you to resolve the issue. If the concern remains unresolved, a person can file a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, which enforces the ADA. An EEOC complaint has deadlines which can vary state by state, so a person should act quickly. The EEOC will investigate the complaint to determine if it has merit and may conduct a hearing if they believe there was discrimination. They can also issue a right to sue letter so you can file a court case. An EEOC complaint and this right to sue letter are required before filing a lawsuit in federal court uh, regarding discrimination under the ADA. Um, if you don't have that right to sue letter, you, your, your case would be dismissed. It is important to check your state laws here. In New York, for example, our city and state human rights laws mirror the ADA, but apply it to employers with four or more employees, which means they offer protections to a broader group of people than the federal law does. If you feel like you've been discriminated against, I urge you to talk to an attorney before taking any legal steps that you so that you fully understand both your rights and responsibilities, as the law can be very complicated. I'm going to speak about uh, uh, more about COBRA next. Did you did you want to introduce that part, Dr. Messer? Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. So Ms. Um, Corbin is going to have a whole bunch of other topics. So she did discuss um, disclosure, and now she's going to address COBRA, continuation of insurance benefits if employment ends and its limitations, and disability, short-term, long-term, social security disability (SSD) and supplemental security income (SSI). These are all very important topics, and I think she's also going to add some other information about COVID-19 um, protections as well. So it's my pleasure now to, to, to have <laughs> Ms. Gorman continue. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, so there are, of course, of course, situations where a person needs to take time off of work, whether for a short or long period of time. The most common concerns that we hear about taking time off are those about health insurance and continuation of income, so I want to address those issues here. If a person cannot return to work and receives a notice of termination, they have the right under a law called COBRA to continue their health insurance for at least 18 months. This federal law applies to employers with, uh, with 20 or more employees, but you also need to check your state law here. In New York, for example, we have a state COBRA law that applies to employers with four or more employees, and the benefit is available for three years. Again, this is another example where the federal law is the floor, the minimum, and state laws can be more comprehensive and more generous. With COBRA, you're now responsible for paying the full premium with no employer contribution, um, but you do pay at the lower group rate. If you're approved for Social Security disability, COBRA can extend the 18-month period of continuation coverage to 29 months, but you must let them know as soon as the disability approval is made. The rules regarding COBRA and Medicare are complicated, so please be sure to speak to an attorney or check the insurance policy if you're eligible for both COBRA and Medicare. 
As for income replacement, there are a number of options available. Five states require employers to offer short-term disability protection. Although this is good news, the benefit is often fairly low. Most, uh, many employers rather offer private short-term disability plans. These are generally for 26 weeks and pay a percentage of your salary. If you cannot return to work after 26 weeks, the 26 week period, you may have a long-term disability policy for your employer, so it's important to check your benefits. If your employer does offer long-term disability, there is also generally a 26 week wait period for those benefits. The amount is based on a percentage of salary, which is usually about 60%, and it's a tax-free benefit if the employee has paid the premiums. It's important to review the policy before applying so that you understand all of the benefits and qualifications as some long-term disability plans do have pre-existing condition exclusions. There's also the option of applying for social security benefits, and there are two types that are relevant here that I'll discuss, social security disability, or SSD, and SSI, supplemental security income. Both of these are based on an applicant's inability to work, not just at their particular job, but in any capacity at any job. You also have to show that it is likely that the disability is expected to last at least one year. Along with establishing inability to work, Social Security disability is based on one's work history being both recent and substantial. For someone without a work history, SSI may be available, but there are income and resource limits. For example, an applicant cannot have resources of over $2,000 for a single person or $3,000 for a couple. SSD has a five-month wait period from the onset of disability to start receiving benefits. SSI does not have a wait period. For these income replacement benefits, it's critical to talk with your doctor to make sure that he or she will certify that you are unable to work as a result of your cancer diagnosis or treatment. I want to mention also that there is a special Social Security program called Compassionate Allowances that allows for an expedited approval of, um, of your application for Social Security, and many cancer diagnoses are included on that list. A person can apply for SSD online on Social Security's website, ssa.gov, and you can also open an online account to see if you qualify and also see a summary of your potential benefits. So now I want to touch briefly to, uh, on some of the protections and benefits specifically relevant to COVID-19. As things are rapidly changing, I will only touch on these and would urge everyone to check their federal and state agency websites. And I'll also provide um, another website that um, a list of resources put together by the law firm Paul Weiss. Um, that is a great compilation of, of benefits from the federal government state by state. Um, unemployment insurance is a state benefit, but the U.S. Department of Labor announced new guidelines outlining state flexibilities in administering their unemployment insurance programs to assist Americans affected by COVID-19. For example, the federal law allows states to pay benefits where an employer temporarily ceased operations due to COVID-19, preventing employees from coming into work, and an individual quarantined with the expectation of returning to work after the quarantine is over, and an individual leaves employment due to a risk of exposure infection or to care for a family member. Um, there's also the Emergency Family and Medical Leave Expansion Act that provides employees with COVID-19 related family leave, as um, more generous than FMLA. There's also the Emergency Paid Sick Leave Act that provides employees with COVID-19 related sick leave. Um, so those are just a few of the specific uh, federal benefits that have been enacted. Um, but again, a lot of these, um, there's a lot of state laws that are changing as well. So um, it's important to, to see what your state is doing in response. And lastly, I just want to mention oral parity laws, which may be relevant to there be a greater use right now of oral chemotherapy. Typically, cancer medications that are administered intravenously are covered under a health plan's medical benefits while cancer medications that are taken by mouth are usually covered under a health plan's pharmacy benefit. When it comes to cancer medications, pharmacy benefits typically require the patient to cover a percentage of the drug's overall cost. Since cancer drugs are typically very expensive, this type of cost share creates serious barriers to care for patients needing to take oral medication to treat their cancer. Right now, 43 states in, in Washington, D.C. have oral parity laws limiting patient out-of-pocket costs for oral medications used to treat cancer. So I know this is a lot of information, and I encourage listeners to take time to educate themselves about these laws and their state laws that offer protections and seek out resources such as cancer care to have a better understanding of their rights and responsibilities. I also want to briefly mention there's a National Cancer Legal Service Network, a group of attorneys like, uh, like myself and those I work with, 
who offer free legal advice to help people with cancer. Um, so, and, and that website will be provided through, um, through Carolyn at the end as well, but it's nclsn.org. Um, thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much, uh, Ms. Gorman. That was really uh, Yeoman's uh, presentation on uh, all of the protections people have in the workplace and some of the newer ones as well. And I do want to remind all of you that um, we are going to be sending you an evaluation at the end of the program, but it's really not just an evaluation. It also includes a lot of resources and many resources um, from um, Ms. Gorman that actually will be very useful to you to have um, in terms of just um, just accessing further information. So thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Kathleen Nugent. Ms. Nugent is Director of Regional Programs Cancer Care. And Ms. Nugent will be addressing solutions to address workplace challenges, tips of creating a plan to continue working, the importance of self-advocacy, and Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Nugent. Uh, thank you, Dr. Master Carolyn and Dr. Grala and Ms. Gorman, uh, wonderful presentations, and thank you to everyone participating in today's Connect Education Workshop. As Dr. Mester mentioned, I am an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. Um, the diagnosis of cancer can be devastating. One's life is suddenly changed. The diagnosis can present physical, practical, financial, and emotional challenges. Patients often feel alone and experience a sense of loss of control. Cancer presents a crisis in the life of the patient and the family. And everyone handles a cancer diagnosis differently. There's no one right way to handle it. But on top of coping with cancer, one is now having to face the stress and fears of the global COVID-19 pandemic. Before I speak about workplace concerns, I'd like to just address some thoughts on the present health crisis and coping with cancer at the same time. Um, first of all, the anxiety and stress about the virus that, that you may be feeling at this time is normal. It's important to feel, it, it, it is normal to feel anxious and worried and recognize that this is a shared experience. We're all feeling it and you're not alone. And the question is then how do you manage your anxiety and your stress? So some suggestions on managing uh, anxiety and stress at this time. Uh, stay connected with others. Although we've been directed to keep social distance, it is important to stay connected. Take action. Use the telephone, video conferencing, FaceTime, Zoom, and other social media platforms if available. Examine your support system. Who can you turn to for support? Is it a family member, friend, coworker? Look at the role each person has in your life and how they may be able to assist you with not only your workplace decisions, but other practical concerns at this time. Each person can play a role in your recovery. You may also consider reaching out to one of the many cancer support organizations like Cancer Care to speak to a professional oncology social worker who can provide support and guidance throughout your cancer journal. And how often, excuse me, how have you dealt with cancer in your life in the past? What has worked for you? What has not worked? What are your strengths? Taking a look at past crisis and how you utilize your coping skills at this time can be very helpful in dealing with your cancer crisis and now in the virus concerns. Focus on what you can do rather than what you are not able to do. Use those strengths and successful past strategies. Find small activities that you can do in your home. Watch movies, read books, knit. Recognize your limits if you're fatigued or have side effects from treatment, but there are many small things you can do. Maybe play music that's comforting write in a journal. Um, Self-care is very important at this time, not only during cancer treatment, but certainly during this, this critical period. Take time out. Exercise if possible. Do yoga, meditation, some deep breathing, stretching. These all can be very helpful. And if you can, get out if possible and get some fresh air. Again, keep that, that social distance. We're now working in a new workplace environment as addressed by the previous speakers. For most of us, all non-essential workers have been told to stay home and work from home if possible. So these remarks that I'm going to um, present now should be viewed as thoughts for the future as well as now. Working during your cancer treatment or returning to work after completing treatments can be challenging. Remember that cancer can have a profound life-changing effect.
a new normal is created. I have seen many cancer patients throughout my career rush back into the workplace expecting everything to be the same. Many are surprised and disappointed. Many find that their priorities have changed. Take it slow. Listen to your body. You may have to adjust your pace to work with your new normal. Evaluate your readiness to work. Can you work part-time or full-time? If you can manage part-time, what kinds of accommodations need to be made? Once you have decided to go back to work, part-time or full-time, work out a schedule with your employer. And of course, now, if you can work remotely during this global practice, a global crisis, please do. Here are a few tips to help you win the challenge of facing the workplace. Discuss your work plan with your doctor and or healthcare team. If you need to work during treatments, share this information with your doctor. Maybe your treatment protocol and schedule can be adjusted to accommodate your workplace needs. Discuss with your medical team any side effects you may have as a result of your treatment. How can you manage these side effects while working? Your medical team can be very helpful in providing useful information and support with this issue. At your workplace, who do you tell about your diagnosis? It depends on your individual comfort level and your own personal experience at work. Who are you comfortable telling and who can provide you support? You may feel uncomfortable, but you do need to tell your boss and you will have to talk to the human resources to learn about your company's policies. HR can be very helpful to you in how to communicate with others at your workplace. As mentioned earlier, slow your pace, take work breaks, set priorities, take care of one's responsibility at a time rather than multiple, multiple working. Uh, set attainable goals. Set small goals at first to help make the adjustment back to the workplace easier. Write down your priorities and goals and cross out as you accomplish each goal. Smaller goals can be more attainable. Delegate whenever possible. And remember, work can be a positive distraction and can help to give you a better sense of control in your life. As mentioned earlier, speaking to a professional social worker can be helpful during your adjustment back into the workplace. Support around survivorship issues is essential in order for people to thrive in their lives and workplaces post-treatment. And cancer care can help guide and support patients through many of these issues. Cancer care is the leading national organization dedicated to providing free professional support services, including counseling support groups, educational workshops, publications, and financial assistance to anyone affected by cancer. All our services are provided by oncology social workers and world-leading cancer experts. Our short-term cancer-focused individual counseling and support groups are available to those diagnosed with cancer as well as for loved ones or caregivers to address these concerns. They are offered in person, uh, excuse me, these services are offered in person in the New York City, New Jersey area and over the telephone and online nationally. But at this time, all of our social workers are working remotely and support services are available through the telephone. Working one-on-one -on -one with an oncology social worker in individual counseling can offer a space that's just yours to express your concerns. It also provides a space to help navigate difficult decision-making or communication with loved ones or your medical team, among other challenges that may, may arise. Your social worker can work with you to address your concerns in a way that's tailored to your individual needs. Joining a support group offers the opportunity to speak with others who may be experiencing similar issues and navigating similar challenges. Additionally, it's also a space to both gather and provide support and obtain valuable information. Our groups at this time are offered through the telephone and online. A cancer diagnosis can be overwhelming. Having support and guidance as well as establishing a support network of trusted people can help to relieve feelings of anxiety that may come up. Having the support can also reduce feelings of loneliness and can help to increase feelings of hope and empowerment. In addition to Cancer Care short-term cancer-focused support services, we also provide additional services, including educational workshops, reading materials, as well as limited financial support. And Carolyn has mentioned um, on March 30th, um, this coming Monday, Cancer Care will host a telephone education workshop on the uh, COVID-19 guidelines for people coping with cancer. 
If you're interested in learning more about cancer care services, I encourage you to call, call Cancer Care's National Hopeline at 1-800-813-4673 and speak to one of our oncology social workers. Our oncology-trained social workers can be very helpful in setting an action plan and managing your new normal. Our social workers can also provide resources to access clinical trials, financial assistance, and potential supports local to you. The cancer experience often leaves us feeling alone. I would like to emphasize that you're not alone. Cancer Care is here for you. We provide help and hope to all cancer patients. Lastly, celebrate your strengths. Through the cancer journey, patients and caregivers face day-to-day -day challenges and discover new strengths and courage. Acknowledge this and celebrate. Be good to yourself. I will end by sharing a quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Quote, the hero is no braver than an ordinary man, but he is braver five minutes longer, end of quote. You look forward, we look forward to hearing from you and thank you for your attention and the opportunity to be a part of this program today. I'll now turn it over to uh, Dr. Messer. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Nugent. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful uh, quote to end with as well. Very, very inspiring for everybody on the call, so thank you. And all the services that people can access, so thank you. And we now do have time, and thank you for our speakers, for the questions. And so I'm going to ask, our, um, to ask Norma to bring all of our speakers on board and to explain to everybody how to queue up for questions. Norma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the phone <coughs> key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Excellent seminar. I have two questions. My first question, since I've been a nurse and social worker, but I also have a breast cancer survivor for 13 years, my questions are, do I get the same accommodations from the ADA since I'm on social security disability at volunteer jobs I've had since I've been had social, uh, breast cancer in the past, but my problem has been there's been discrimination at some of these volunteer jobs in some local hospitals I've been at, asking to carry heavy charts, objects, uh, different uh, things to patients' rooms that are heavy, very heavy supplies. And I was never given any accommodations for that, told that you have to do that or you could leave. Also, what does a person do if they on Social Security disability? Do they transfer over to regular um, Social Security when they're 65 years old? Um, I'm also afraid of disclosing at any next voluntary jobs or even part-time jobs. Um, fearful since I have to give my history and when you're asked at the job. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Stephanie, for those questions. Um, so I'm going to ask uh, Ms. Gorman if you could address um, some of those questions. Sure. Um, so my understanding would be that as a volunteer, I, uh, so, so sorry, I just missed what organization you were volunteering with, but, you know, assuming um, it's an organization with a certain number of employees um, where the ADA would apply, or if not the ADA, then also protections in, in the state in which you live, whether it's state human rights laws or local city human rights laws, that as a volunteer, that you, you would be covered under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, I don't I don't see anything that would make me think that you wouldn't be uh, given any kind of uh, coverage through that. Um, and just the second, um, and so I would uh, suggest asking for an accommodation um, from the employer, um, putting it in writing in the same way that an employee would um, you know, regard, with regard to listing or any other things. Um, so that would be my advice. Um, we, in my organization, we have a volunteer who need, needed a standing work desk and was able to get that um, as an accommodation from, from my organization. Um, with regard to Social Security, uh, yeah, when you are under the retirement age, and the retirement age is based on um, your data, your year of birth, um, so uh, when you're under the retirement age, you would be eligible for Social Security disability. And then when you reach retirement age, it would become uh, a retirement benefit. Um, so 
So that is how Social Security, disability, and retirement benefits work. Um, a lot of times I'll, act, I'll often, um, you know, speak to people who are at early retirement age, which is uh, around 61 years old, um, and they'll sort of be weighing whether to apply for Social Security disability or early retirement. Social Security disability is usually a much more generous benefit than early retirement. The difference between the two is the application process. Early retirement, you don't need to do anything uh, or prove anything to apply for it. It's based on the age. While Social Security disability, you do have to meet the disability requirements and you do have to go through the waiting period. Um, so uh, those are just a little, bit, uh, a little bit about the differences between those programs. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. And um, we have a question for our online participants. Um, does um, COPD-19 have different effects on this issue? Um, so, Dr. Grala, could you address that just to put in a context for this participant? Well, um, I think that uh, we uh, simply have to be more uh, cautious than, uh, than ever, and uh, uh, we do understand that there are that this is one of the uh, uh, co-existing, uh, uh, pre-existing type illnesses that expose us to greater risk. So, in the workplace, we have to be sure that we have the social distancing and all the rest. Again, as many of the speakers have said, uh, many people are working from home these days, so that would not be an, an additional issue. But um, uh, again, many people with uh, cancer have quite good immune systems, but nonetheless, there is an extra risk, a, a modest extra risk for those with cancer and those uh, uh, undergoing cancer treatments. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and we have another online question. This is um, a complicated question, um, and it's uh, – I'm going to – I'm going to ask probably um, Ms. Gorman if you could address it. I'm going to read it in different parts of it because it is actually a, a long question. So let's see if I can. So I'm caregiving for my friend who was diagnosed with glioblastoma, a brain tumor, in December. She'd like to return to work, but is concerned she won't be able to fulfill the essential functions of her job. She has a long and short-term disability insurance, but has many, many questions, and her HR is not being helpful. A few questions. Um, so uh, one is, can she access her 401k without penalty? Um, and so maybe we should take them one at a time because it's, there are a lot of there's. So I guess if, so. If you could comment on this part of the question first, if you could. So I believe that you can access your 401k without penalty if you have a disability. So the penalty usually would apply if you are under a certain age. Um, uh, and I do believe that if you have a disability, um, that you would not be subject to the penalty. Um, so that's the answer to that question. Okay. And then the next question is, is there an advantage to having a month-by-month -month disability certification um, as her current insurance is requiring? Um, are you talking about health insurance? Disability. It's sort of it's a disability. Or like the long term disability. Mm, I'm not sure. Yeah. It's a long term. I'm not sure what benefit you're referring to. She has long and short term disability yeah. insurance, but has many questions. So it's about the long and term, long and short term okay. disability. So typically with um, so typically with short term and long term disability, yes, there's a disability certification. Um, with short-term disability, usually the, your doctor will put a return to work date. And so say your doctor puts a return to work date in a month, um, yes, you may need to get another sort of certification from your doctor after that month period to, to certify that there's, you know, another month that you need. Um, uh, so, you know, a lot of people's doctors will, will put, um, like, typically a short-term disability benefits for six months. Um, we'll put like a six month period as the return to work date or, um, you know, just estimate their best return to work date. But yes, if you like, go beyond that date, you will need another certification. And she was actually talking, she just emailed it, health insurance um, was the issue month by month. Okay. 
Um, I'm not sure exactly um, what you're referring to. I'm so sorry with health insurance and, and certifying some kind of disability for your ins your insurance company. If you can clarify that online, that would be great. I'm not sure. Uh, I I don't I haven't come across certifying uh, a disability for for purposes of health insurance. And then the next question, which I think you probably so clearly addressed mm -hmm. to everybody on the call, is how could she go about finding a disability employment lawyer in Ohio? And I think there's a national resource that you've given as well, so maybe that would be helpful to just yeah, provide that again. I and we'll send it to people as well, but maybe to just uh, address it again. So it's um, there's there's a resource that I can provide for people with cancer to find attorneys um, that can specialize in cancer-related issues. Um, it is through my employer, and it's the um, Legal Cancer Network. Uh, I'm just, it's the um, Legal Service Network. It's a group of attorneys who offer free legal advice for people with cancer. And the website's N, like Nancy, C, like um, Kat, L is in Larry, S is in Sam, N is in Nancy.org, uh, National Cancer Legal Services Network. Um, and I would always, especially if you're on the lower income side, I would try to find um, a free legal services uh, if possible. <laughs> um, I'm not sure which, um, if you're looking for help applying for social security or things like that, most lawyers typically work on contingencies, so you, you, they pay, um, are paid out of a percentage of, of an, whatever award you're given ultimately. So this is a question now from one of our online participants. Um, thank you for that. Um, and this one actually, um, again, from this one, but I think that um, others may want to weigh in on this. Um, I run a small business, and I don't have a luxury of sick days or paid medical leave. I worry that I'll have to close down my shop for all the treatments I need. I don't have money in the budget to hire someone else. What tips can you provide to help those who work for themselves? Um, how to explain things to my customers. That's a complicated question. If there's just some basic tips that you can provide, Ms. Gorman and perhaps uh, Ms. Nugent. Well, um, so there are, so I would recommend um, looking at your state and local laws because, yes, there are a lot of employers that the federal laws won't apply to due to the number of employees. Um, but there can be benefits available to people who um, have their own business or who have a small number of, employee, uh, of employees. Um, and especially these sorts of benefits have been expanded uh, in the wake of COVID-19. Um, and so I'm not sure exactly <laughs> how many employees you might have. Um, also, I know, you know, when you have your own business, there are concerns about health insurance. Um, so it can be a very fact-based uh, answer depending on what state you're in and um, you know and, and again like the, and the number of employees um, so I would I would consult with an attorney wherever you are um, to get a more uh, direct answer to your question and based, on, the based on the past would she call like a national group like triage cancer or some group like that that actually is available to get information from nationally or yeah, no, I would, I think a lot of the benefits that, a lot of these types of employment benefits and disability benefits are state-based. So it's hard to speak to um, someone's benefits, uh, you know, when, if, if you don't practice in their state. So I would, um, if you reach out to the legal, um, the Cancer Legal Services Network, you can find an, uh, an attorney in your state and they could do a, you know, a, a uh, an assessment uh, or intake with you that is specific to your situation. Thank you. And, and Ms. Nugent, do you want to comment as well? Well, I was just going to comment that the fact that she's she or he is very um, int concerned about um, her fellow employees, I think, just speaks to the uh, kindness um, and um, the compassion that she has for others. And I think that's a piece that we have to remember uh, being kind and doing for others can help us through not only the cancer journey but also what we're all dealing with right now. And and I would encourage uh, this person to um, take care. <clears throat> excuse me. Take care of yourself. Um, do those little things that I mentioned earlier. 
but I think um, the fact that you're concerned about others just speaks so highly about your strengths and your courage. And <clears throat> especially during this time, as, um, as was mentioned, they're probably, you know, we, as difficult as this is, I think the government is stepping up so there are some more possibilities for um, employers, uh, for their, their workers to get, get support during this difficult time. Yeah. And I think um, I just, you know, would point to unemployment insurance as a benefit for employees potentially um, and, uh, you know, for, for the proprietor, for the person who owns the business, potentially uh, things like social security disability, um, there could be benefits, you know, benefits out there um, definitely for that person. Dr. Grawla, do you want to add anything? Or? No, I think uh, that's very complete, but uh, I do think Ms. Gorman's uh, uh, comment uh, that uh, in different states with different rules that uh, it's such an important issue that one should get some legal counseling on it. And, um, and we have um, um, another question in front of online participants. So how do I work well with my colleagues when I have cancer? They often complain about covering for people who are absent, even for medical reasons. I've spoken to my supervisor in human resources about my cancer, but have not told my coworkers. I'm afraid I will become the scapegoat of the office. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, a difficult question to answer. Um, again, everybody's situation is a little different. Um, I would hope that um, HR could assist in this a little bit. Um, but again, um, I think finding that maybe one person uh, that they might be close to on the job that can um, that they can get some support from because it's very difficult when you're in a situation where there's no support at all. Um, again, looking outside the workplace, you know, talking to a uh, social worker such as someone from cancer care uh, can give support. So sometimes if you can't get the support there in your workspace, uh, making sure that you have support outside uh, can be very helpful just to get through um, what needs to be done to get you through the day. But I would definitely work with, with HR, and maybe there are some accommodations working, uh, again, remotely so that they don't have to be um, in the workplace. But um, seek support uh, from elsewhere if you're not getting it there at the workplace. Um, and um, I, Yes. This, this is Nina. Yeah, I would. Yeah. I would just. I would just add. You know, the as an employee, you have no obligation to disclose your health status to your coworkers, um, obviously, and your supervisor, or not, rather, not your supervisor, but um, human resources. The employer um, can't explain to other employees why you know why anything would you know anything is going on or anything might be affecting your work. Um, so, yeah, some of those are, are, are personal choices, but you definitely um, are entitled to protections regarding disclosure should you not be comfortable disclosing anything. And your employer cannot take adverse action against you, um, you know, should you be able to do your, your, your basic essential functions of your job. But I am sorry for, you know, having to endure that by coworkers. And, and Dr. Grella, do you want to add anything as well? Yes, just uh, something. See, um, I think that this would be uh, uh, something important to discuss with your healthcare team. So uh, they may be able to help you in uh, discussing with others, be that family or workers or whatever, and having a good understanding of uh, what the time constraints uh, just for your treatment should be and uh, getting rest. So have a clear understanding and discuss it. Sometimes we are afraid to disclose and we think that uh, others may think poorly of us when in fact that may not be so. And discussing this with somebody who understands your cancer, your nurse, your doctor, your social worker, might be helpful also. Well, I want to thank all of our speakers today. They were just wonderful, phenomenal speakers. What a great team today of speakers. Um, and I also want to thank all of you who asked such really great questions during the question and answer period. Now, this is a one-hour program, and I recognize that you all have many, many needs that go far beyond the scope of a one-hour program. And indeed, I know there are many more questions in queue as well. So I do want to, I want to acknowledge that, first of all. 
Um, so how do you get your questions answered? Even if you asked a question, you still want to maybe to go back to treating healthcare team or people who know you well. So I do suggest that you, of course, always go to your healthcare team. But I also know that you like to have credible resources to go to um, to get information. That's that is um, you know evidence-based information that's reliable. And so I would suggest that you would um, contact. You can contact Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673. Our staff or oncology social workers can give you wonderful resources. You also can visit us online at www.cancercare.org. For those of you who may have a medical question, you can contact the National Cancer Institute. They have both a, uh, a, a toll-free number and they also have a website, www.cancer.gov. And also I should tell you that all these resources that we're giving you those will all be in the evaluation form that you'll get from us. So it's not just an evaluation form. It also includes all these different resources that you can access. In addition to that, um, there are a number of other organizations that we'll be listing for you to contact. Um, our, many of our speakers gave you particular resources, mentioned them, and we'll be sending those resources to you in the evaluation form so you'll have that additional information. So that's really helpful. Your healthcare team, by the way, does consist of both your oncologists, but also a host of other people, some of whom you may not always meet. Certainly the oncology nurse you meet, the oncology social worker, the patient navigator, the financial assistance people. There are lots of people in that team in your hospitals, and each of you are in different centers that have a whole host of people that can help you with some of your concerns and questions. Now also, I know that there are times when each of you may feel alone when you may feel like just feeling so alone. And I and that's a normal feeling to have. People do feel that way. However, I want you to also be aware that you are now part of a very large, um, really a large group of resources that are free that you can contact at any time. And they can be of a tremendous help to you. And um, there is some that really provide um, just a lot of different resources. And, and also in your own community, there may be resources too, because each of you come from different parts of the country and world as well. So I just want to be sure to mention that. And I just want to thank you all for your being on this call today. Um, we hope that you've learned a lot, that you'll take that information back to treating healthcare team, that you will apply it to um, issues that you may be having in the workplace so that you can deal with those issues. Um, in a more, you'll be more informed about those issues. And you also can, of course, talk to one of our oncology social workers about any issues that you still may have or concerns. So I want to thank you all for your participation, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.